everybody. Uh, this Advent season, we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, and Advent, of course, means coming. And during Advent, we tend to focus on what it means that Jesus came to earth at Christmas some 2,000 years ago, or what it means that Jesus is coming again. And sometimes we look at both. Both of the letters that we're looking at today, the letter to the church in Sardis and the letter to the church in Philadelphia, both letters make reference to the fact that Jesus is coming and coming soon. And that in the light of that fact, we as Christians need to be ready for him. Um, As I've now noted a few times in this series... Uh, Jesus often talks about the fact that he is coming soon in the book of Revelation. And given that that book is actually nearly 2,000 years old, having been written around uh, the end of the first century AD, uh, that claim may now sound a little bit incredible, uh, hard to believe. Um, But we have already in this series thought about how the New Testament doesn't know when Jesus is returning. In fact, the New Testament knows that it doesn't know when Jesus is returning. Jesus might come in our day, in our times, or perhaps indeed not for many generations. But what the New Testament is affirming when it says that Jesus is coming soon is that it is the very next thing. That God will do. The return of Christ is the next thing God will do, theologically speaking. Theologically speaking, what goes up must come down. And we are very, very close to the very end of salvation history. A salvation history that has had many, many, many steps along the way, just one more to go. It is true, therefore, theologically speaking, that Jesus is coming soon, albeit that could mean this year, or equally, not for another thousand years. Either way, we must be ready. Uh, Both of our letters in the book of Revelation today refer to Jesus' coming and coming soon. Uh, In the letter to Sardis, uh, verse 3, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Well, um, what does it mean that Jesus is coming and coming like a thief? Well, as we've seen in this series on Revelation, the, 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 the key to all of the, the clues to all that we need to know is found essentially elsewhere in the Bible. And indeed, when Jesus was on earth, he said to his disciples, uh, Matthew 24, he said, <clears throat> talking about uh, his own return, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. 
That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So as the thief comes when we least expect him, Jesus is coming when we will least expect him. Therefore, we must watch and be ready. Getting back to Revelation, uh, also on the fact that Jesus is coming soon, uh, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So um, what is this hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth? Well, uh, when he was on earth, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 24, explaining about this hour of trial. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back home to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled, from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had uh, had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Well, uh, when we we read such sobering words as these, we, we tend to think of history as a kind of linear thing. We think of time as a straight line. There's a beginning you know, there's the past, there's the present, there's, there's the future, there's the end. Um, 
either these things will happen in our lifetime or they won't because either we are the last generation of Christians before Christ comes again or we're not. But perhaps a better way of reading about these things is of these things being constantly true, true of every generation. Um, this, this describes what happened in the first century, what the first generation of Christians experienced. Um, these things can be true of every generation, whether they're the last before Christ comes or not. Um, because, in a sense, we live in a time of grace. We live in a time of forgiveness. But that time of grace finishes either when Christ returns, thereafter he judges, or for us as individuals, when we die and enter into judgment. Every generation then experiences the hour of trial in one way or another. So getting back to Revelation, perhaps the temptation for both churches, both at Sardis and Philadelphia, perhaps the temptation they were all suffering was the temptation simply to deny Christ. Um, perhaps they were being persecuted, whether by Roman authorities or the local Jewish synagogues. Perhaps they were being persecuted for their Christian faith. And um, in this series, I've already uh, talked uh, uh, quite a bit, actually, about what Roman persecution looked like and why it happened. Uh, we looked at that last week when we looked at the letter to Pergamon. And the week before that, I spoke quite a bit about Jewish persecution of Christians and why that was happening and what it looked about what it looked like. I guess just really the point for this week is that in this area, the Roman province of Asia, at the end of the first century AD, life could be very difficult for Christians. They didn't have the protection of either the state or the synagogue, and both Jews and Romans hated and persecuted them for different reasons. The charge to the church in Sardis was this. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Um, that, that, charge really is, um, <clears throat> that charge really is delightfully ambiguous, isn't it? Uh, I mean, actually, we don't know what their deeds were, so we don't know what it means that they were unfinished. In what way were they deficient? Well, um, this is, I think, the beauty of these letters, that, that actually they, they speak to every context. Um, how will they speak to us today? I don't know. How did they speak to them in that day? Well, perhaps there is a clue in the second half of the letter, verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge 
that name. Or I will confess that name before my Father and his angels. And again, when he was on earth, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So this is about being prepared to acknowledge Jesus before others. And all this talk about clothing, what does that mean? Well, Jesus talks a lot about clothing in these letters, soiled clothing, white clothing. Um, I'm guessing he's speaking figuratively um, because clothing is very symbolic. Um, And clothing is symbolic of righteousness, which is to say being right before God. Or another way of saying that is that clothing is symbolic of the dignity we have before God and each other. Uh, In the Bible, to strip somebody of their clothes is to strip them of their dignity. In Jesus' parable, you may remember in Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet from Matthew chapter 22, one of the guests is thrown out because he's not in wedding clothes. He's wearing the wrong clothing and he's thrown out and and there there is no chance for him of ever being let back in. The probable meaning of that turn of events in the story is that the man in question refused to put on the robe that had been provided for him by the host. The robe that gave him dignity, but the robe that made him the same as everyone else. And he didn't want to be the same as he wanted to stand there in the dignity of his own clothing, which was not good enough. In the book of Revelation, we see God's people depicted again and again as a crowd of people dressed in white. And white, we remember, is symbolic of holiness, of purity. In chapter 7, we read, uh, John is having a vision, and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, these things are symbolic, aren't they? This is figurative, obviously. I mean, if you wash something in blood, it turns red, not white. But these people are dressed in white. They are holy and pure. Why are they holy and pure? Because they have been forgiven. They are righteous. They have dignity before God. Why? Because Jesus has clothed them with his dignity. At at the cross, Jesus was stripped of his clothing. At the cross, Jesus was clothed 
with our sin. He took that, he wore it. He took that upon himself. Our sin clothed him. It wasn't his sin, he was righteous. He did that in order that we might be forgiven, clothed with his dignity, clothed with his righteousness, his standing before God. This is what clothing is about. So working backwards, it would seem that perhaps, I don't know, it's not 100% clear, we are all guessing at it one way or another, but perhaps those inside us are spiritually dead and told to wake up, they've soiled their clothes because perhaps they have caved into pressure and they're in a position where, sure, when they get together, they look alive and, you know, they're praising God and they're all encouraging each other. But once they leave out the front door, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not really one of them. Um, uh, uh, no, I've never, I've never met the man. <laughs> Uh, uh, are Christians, oh no, I think you're thinking thinking of somebody else. Perhaps they're really, in some way or another, denying Christ when the pressure is on. It's actually not that hard to do. Just ask Peter. Yet there is still hope. Just ask Peter. Forgiveness is held out to them. Forgiveness is theirs. Newly washed clothing is theirs. But only if they repent, which is to say to ask for forgiveness, to to ask for the forgiveness they need, to change their thinking, to modify their behavior, to do the right thing. Verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. And perhaps the situation in Philadelphia is similar, but different. Perhaps they've not caved in to the pressure. Verse 8, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word, you have kept my teaching, and have not denied my name. Um, You know, perhaps actually they weren't setting Philadelphia on fire. Perhaps they weren't on the front page of the newspapers. Perhaps actually they weren't doing much of anything at all. But when they were cornered on the street, they confessed the good name, the good confession. Yes, 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 I I am. I, 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 I am a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. A bunch of weaklings, but they've got it where it counts as far as the Lord's concerned. He loves them. And you know what? He's going to vindicate them before, before their enemies because that is part of justice. We all know persecution in one way or another. We all experience it from time to time for one thing or another. But part of justice is the promise of vindication. There's no justice without vindication. In this particular case, their enemies will come and fall down at their feet and acknowledge that they, the Christians, they're the ones that God knows, that God cares for, that God belongs to, and them to him. That They will confess that that's the truth. 
vindication is promised to you and to me and to all of us whenever we just simply trust Jesus Jesus, our judge, will vindicate us for the world. Sooner or later, he will show the world that we were right to trust him. That's a promise. And Jesus makes many other promises to them, promises that today are through the text being made to us. Verse 11, I am coming soon. One way or another, You and I, none of us, have to wait very long to see Christ's deliverance. It might be him him saving us from the trial we're experiencing today. It might be uh, us walking into glory through that banner um, on the day that we die. Or it might be Jesus' return and the whole cosmos witnessing it. But one way or another, none of us have to wait long to see Christ's deliverance. I am coming soon. (laughs) Continuing, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Um, These people live in one of the most earthquake-prone regions of the world and leaving Uh, Philadelphia was a regular occurrence as they felt some tremors and they just ran out into open ground. Uh, Being promised not having to leave is a wonderful promise. Um, Also, um, they they are apparent weaklings, but actually they are pillars, a picture of strength and power. And Jesus continues, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Uh, So then, uh, we've heard it from the Bible this morning. It's okay to have tattoos as long as Jesus is your tattoo artist. Because it appears that in heaven, we'll all be covered in writing. At least three new names. Um, I mean, actually, this is figurative talk. What that will literally look like, I have no idea. We'll, We'll discover when we get there. But it's figurative talk. It's awfully powerful. <laughs> you may... You, yes... You may know, the, uh, anyone know the animated feature film, The Toy Story? Okay, you know Woody, the cowboy doll? Uh, you might know that on the bottom of his right foot, he has his owner's name written. What is his owner's name? Andy, that's right. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, as you may know, of course, Woody is thrilled and delighted to have Andy's name on the bottom of his right foot because it means that he is loved. It means that he belongs. It means that he matters to Andy and that Andy is not willing for him to be lost. It means that Andy is claiming ownership of this one. Perhaps, um, perhaps if, if, if you're married... Uh, perhaps you might uh, get a similar delight when when you look at your uh, engagement ring or at your wedding ring. It it says that you've been chosen. 
it says that actually you're not your own. Uh, you belong to somebody else. Um, this, is, this is their claim on your life, but also that you have been chosen in, in love. It's a similar possible thing. But um, look, I, 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 I in truth, this, this might come as a shock to you, but um, I don't really get tattoos. Um, <laughs> but I have found myself thinking over the years, just once or twice, that if I was to ever get a tattoo, I would want the name Jesus on the bottom of my right foot. <clears throat> The Bible begins with naming. Naming is about many things, but it's primarily about relationship, about knowing and belonging. When you walk past a stranger on the street, uh, you don't need to know their name. But once you're introduced and you know their name, there is the possibility of, perhaps even the promise of, future relationship. Um, and so when Jesus gives you a new name, that's very special. And when Jesus puts his name on you, that's very special. Um, just as a self-indulgent tangent, my name is in the text today. Uh, uh, verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your Stephanon. Uh, uh, Stephanos, uh, um, uh, uh, it's uh, Stephanie's name as, as well as mine. Uh, Stephanos uh, means usually crown of victory. Uh, it's not a royal crown. It's, uh, not, um, it, it's not a birthright. It's something that you win. It's something that you're given when you are victorious. Um, and this crown of victory constantly reminds us that in these letters, Jesus is the victor and the battle has been won. And all that, all that remains is for us to just hold on and keep on holding on. And to the one who overcomes, we enter into his victory. To the one who has an ear, let him hear or let her hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Um, well, um, Look, this letter could be saying many things to us here today. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity in it, but for me, I guess, how it has spoken to me through this week is that it has reminded me that one of the most basic things about being a Christian is being prepared to let others know that you are a Christian. And that's important because in our fallen nature, we are all tempted from time to time to want to perhaps just, just hide our Christian faith, or, heaven forbid, even on occasions, maybe even to deny our Lord, to deny that we're Christians. And I feel this temptation. You know, when, if I'm in some kind of social setting, um, usually, you know, non-church setting, I don't know, just with, you know, out in the world, uh, the first thing that people will ask me is my name. Uh, I don't usually tell them that means crown of victory, um, um, although, like most pastors, I embarrassingly often tell them what their name means. 
Um, the second thing uh, they're um, going to ask is, what do you do for a living? And, you know, I will stammer, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church, or I'm a priest, or I'm a, an Anglican minister, depending on how they kind of look. What? <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I struggle with the fact that very, 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 very early on in the relationship, they're going to know that I'm a Christian. And me being a pastor, that does not make me immune to the desire to blend in. It does not make me immune to that fallen nature thing, wherein for some reason whatsoever, actually, we're all just a little bit embarrassed um, about belonging to Jesus, about the fact that once we were wild and free, but now we're domesticated. <laughs> God bother us. Um, uh, of course, knowing Jesus is perfect freedom. Uh, but there's something in our fallen natures that, that, makes, that, that, that makes that hard, hard for us in a fallen world to always consistently own that, that we are Christian. Well, for me personally, it's actually not too hard for me to remember back to my non-Christian days, uh, unchurched background, came to faith in Christ in my middle 20s, at primary school, high school, university. I do remember that even though actually, yes, I gave Christians at school from time to time a hard time, just like everybody else, yet nevertheless, there was always something to them that I couldn't deny. It was impressive, even if I never told them that. Um, and as Christians, we often, I think, we often are preoccupied by the content of our witness. You know, am, am I being a good enough Christian? What if they see my weaknesses? What if they see that I'm not perfect? Well, actually, for me, as, as a, as a non-Christian growing up, that was actually no, nothing. I, I, I didn't ever think about that. Actually, it was true that whether that kid was daggy or super cool or anything in between, somehow it was impressive that they belonged to God through Jesus Christ and were prepared to, to say that. That was impressive. Um, and, and so let's resolve the dilemma. Perhaps you're wondering whether um, to put a fish sticker on the back of your car. And you're thinking, but I'm a really lousy driver. Uh, I'm impatient and incompetent. Certainly I am. Um, uh, let me, let me, let's just resolve that right now. Um, I mean, have, this is just this is a hypothetical. Fish stickers, you know, you're free. You don't have to have one. But just in case you're worried about it, and that's your line of thinking, get the fish sticker. It, 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 it is more important that it is of first importance that you're a witness, a secondary importance as to the content of your witness. First step, put the fish sticker there. Then work on your driving. Uh, but, but no, but, but be encouraged. You know, many of us work, many of us work in places, maybe uh, the performing arts, uh, maybe uh, visual arts, uh, maybe um, uh, high school, um, um, uh, maybe um, uh, high finance. I, I don't know, uh, maybe science departments. There are many places where actually you will be despised and looked down on. Um, the humanities of Murdoch University, I don't know, I'm not making any accusation, but I do know there are many places 
where you will be corporately despised if they find out you're a Christian. Be encouraged. We're a bunch of weaklings. But gee, Jesus is proud of us when we say, yes, I belong to him. And he will make sure you always belong to him. And the Lord be with you all. Amen.